Would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Jude this morning? The book of Jude, we'll be looking at verses 3 and 4. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that we come before it this morning in all confidence that it is your word. And because it is your word, it is perfect, it is clear, it is sufficient, and it is eternally applicable and relevant to our lives. Father, we pray this morning that you would stir the hearts of your people by the preaching of this word, that we would take seriously our solemn privilege of contending for the faith which you have preserved for us down through the ages. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, let me read down through verse 4. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For... Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let me begin, let me begin this morning by asking you a probing and, and perhaps it's even a difficult question this morning. Placing yourself as the one who this question is addressed to, why is it that we and you in particular do not always contend for or promote and defend the faith that you and I both claim to believe like we should? Why, why is it that we don't contend? Why, why is it that we find that difficult to do? Is it because we don't really believe that we can contend for the faith? In other words, do we believe that, that at some point our faith is indefensible? Is, is that why we as Christians at times do not do what, what Jude is commanding us to do here? Is it, that we, is it because we feel like at some point we, we are on thin ice? Or... Is it that we do not believe that we personally can because in contending for the faith there will be a price to pay? And that price just is too high. Perhaps there's danger involved and perhaps there's loss of respect involved or loss of relationship involved or, or in the day in which we're living, perhaps uh, working for some company, there might even be loss of finances involved for speaking the truth. Why don't we contend? Or perhaps it's more simple than that. Perhaps we don't contend because we simply don't want to. It's not something we enjoy. It's not something we view as uh, worthy of our efforts. 
So let me begin by dismantling those three objections to Jude's very clear uh, exhortation and command here in verse 3. Drawing upon what we saw last week, for, for those times when we might feel that we have an in, indefensible faith, remember that ours is a faith proved by the work of its founder, God the Father, who left in the left uh, or gave his son to leave the place of glory and enter the place of death in our place so that he might generate new life in those who follow him and by their very testimony give unflinching proof that every detail of his revealed word is true that that, that our faith is a defensible faith It's not an irrational faith. Secondly, because we are loved and called by God the Father, it doesn't matter what dangers we face. We are being kept for the Son. We cannot be lost. So it doesn't matter what price you have to pay. Contend for the faith, Jude says. Know who you are. And knowing who you are, you can go into battle and not give any thought to the cost. Nothing can challenge or pose any real threat, Christian, to your identity and well-being in God, in Christ. You are secure. So don't let that be a reason you do not contend. And for those who might say, I just don't want to. I don't don't like conflict. I don't like contending. I don't enjoy those kinds of things. they're, They're too unsophisticated for me. Well, as true believers, we have no choice or say in the matter. Jude says, you must speak up. The beloved in the Father must speak up. Those kept in the Son and by the Son must speak up. This is not your message you are to contend for. This is His message. And I think too many times Christians do not contend because they don't view it as God's message. It is something, I. it is my message, therefore I have the luxury of contending or not contending for it if it's mine it's mine to choose what i do with but if it's god's as jude says then we must contend for it this is our faith that has been granted by him therefore we must contend for him listen brothers and sisters we need to contend for the faith because not only is it honoring to god but it is the most loving thing we can do for others Their eternity literally hangs on our speaking up. Oh, I know God elects and God chooses, and I understand all of those truths, but God also chose the means by which they would hear the gospel and come to faith, and that is that we open our mouths and tell them and contend for the faith with them that they might believe. If we love others, we will contend. The the thought is often given that, well, contending, that's not loving. That's not what Christians do. Absolutely wrong. Because we love, we contend for the faith. We promote and preserve the faith so that they too might believe. And that God might, through our contending for the faith, call them into salvation. This is a non-optional command for us, brothers and sisters. And what a great day to be alive. What a great day when we see cultural Christianity crumbling around us that's a good thing you know why because all the veneers are gone 
and true believers can contend for the faith. When it costs something to follow Jesus, then is the optimal time to contend for the faith. Not while everybody's pretending to follow Jesus. And so I don't think this is at all a negative or pessimistic outlook. I think this is a great outlook. We have been born in God's sovereign and providential plan in this time, for this time, like Queen Esther. And ours is the command, contend for the faith. Jude exhorts his fellow Christ followers to join him in doing this. And I want you to notice several truths this morning about contending for the faith. Again, several things stand out about what Jude says in his opening statement in verses 1 and 2 this morning. They influence verses 3 and 4. Context is king. By personal testimony, Jude wanted to write to these fellow believers, according to verse 3, about their common salvation. Now, we may read that and we can say, well, look, Jude, he wanted to write about their common salvation. And that may seem like a small and insignificant detail, but the more you think about that, it cannot be a small and insignificant detail. Why? Because Jude is so moved by the overshadowing glory of salvation that he just wants to keep talking about it. Please note with me again that that Jude does not wish to write to them about being the half-brother of Jesus. Now, humanly speaking, if we were Jesus' half-sibling, we'd probably be contacting every publisher we know in order to write a a behind-the-scenes tell-all memoir growing up with Jesus. Right? I mean, we'd want to let everybody know we were Jesus' half-brother. We'd want to tell them all about what it was like living with him, growing up, and all the glorious things we saw him do or say. But Jude doesn't go there. Jude instead says, I I want to write to you about something grand and glorious. I I want to write about the common salvation we have. It's not unique to me because I am Jesus' half-brother and the brother of James. I want to write about our common salvation. And notice that Jude says, I want to make every effort to do that. He's obsessed with this. He, he, is, he is thinking of ways he can fit it in his schedule. He is thinking through it. I wonder if we could say before the Lord this morning that our driving passion and purpose in life was to talk about the common salvation we have. Just just to reflect on the goodness of God. To to, to think about the themes that are contained in verses 1 and 2. That we are loved in God the Father. And that is the source of His calling and choosing us. And then beyond that, we are kept in His Son who can never be lost. The power of a resurrected Christ keeps us. And Jude says, I just want to keep talking about that. I can't move past that. Those who long to speak of salvation so deeply will then have no problem defending it. If you love what Christ has done in you so deeply, you won't have a problem defending it. 
And so notice that Jude, when he gives a command to contend for the faith, it's not divorced from the context of I am so moved by what Christ has done for me that I must continue to speak of it and to defend it. Do you see so much in Christ? Brothers and sisters, do you look upon Christ? Do you cast your cares upon Christ in such a way and see His work for you that it actively arrests you and then arranges your life so that you find every opportunity to speak of Him? That's how Jude is living. That's what's obsessing or possessing Jude and what he is obsessed with. Jude sees infinite worth and value in speaking to these Christians about the transforming power of the gospel. My only question for myself and for you is, do you and do I, do we see it the same way Jude does? This is not just filler material that Jude is putting in here about wanting to write about salvation. That this is the basis of our defense of and contending for the faith. It overshadowed everything for Jude, but Jude was not only overshadowed by salvation's glory, he understood you could not speak of it too many times. You cannot hear it too many times. Furthermore, Jude wants to speak of this salvation, notice, to those who already have it. Jude wants to talk about the glories of what Christ did for him to people whom Christ had already done it for. Jude wants to rehash, as my mother would have said as a child growing up. She always told me, she said, no, Brian, you argue too much. We're not going to rehash this. Jude's rehashing. He, he can't stop. He can't, he can't get away from it. He just wants to keep talking about it. But, but, but notice, his audience is a born-again audience. He's not telling them anything new. He's continuing to tell them the same thing over and over. No, we might expect that if Jude was going to write an epistle, a letter like that, it would be to unbelievers to be an evangelist. But no, Jude says it's important for the believers to hear this as well. Christian, we, though we already believe, we still need to rehearse in our minds over and over again the goodness and the greatness of what God has done in saving us. Because if you're moved by that, you won't have to be told to stand for the faith. You'll be so possessed by it when the persecution or the oppression or the mocking comes, you'll just keep doing it anyway because it's too great not to tell. To, to understand who you are and what you are and where you were headed and yet Christ intervened. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a great story. Like the old hymn says, weave a story to tell to the nations. Why? Because we really believe. And we really are captivated by what God did for us. Can we as Christians, can we really mature past the wonders that God loved us before the foundations of the world? Can you really ever move past that? Not, 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 not if you're Jude, not if you're the other writers of Scripture. You can't move past that. Can you really move past the reality that God called you just like He called Abraham and made 
a saint out of an idolatrous sinner. Can you ever get over that? But I was a pretty good person. No, you weren't. And it wasn't some general call. God just threw out a fishnet and said, I hope somebody responds. After all, my son died. Hope somebody takes me up on it. No, he looked down and he said, you and you and you, come here. Believe this. He calls us just as he did Abraham, just as he has done every one of his people. Can we really move past that? Can we really move past the love of the Father and the Son so that in what they accomplish, they are not only saving you, but but they're going to keep you from falling from that? Can you move past that? That you are secure for all eternity? Can you ever go past? No! And I don't want to. And every believer who has come to know God never moves past that. Jude certainly doesn't. Perhaps it was Jude who wrote the songs to the old gospel hymn. I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting just to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing that new, new song, twill be the old, old story that I have loved so long. You see, the writer of that hymn never got over what God did for him in Christ. And so in Jude's mind, I, I pray that it will be the same as in my mind and in your mind that we never move past what God has done for us. And our desire is always to promote and to speak of the, the reality that God grasps us out of the grip of sin and death and hell. While we hated Him, He reached down like Luther said and plucked us like brands from the fire. Christ did this for us while we were dead in our trespasses, in our sins, alienated from God, enemies with God. Christ died for us. We were without hope in this world or in the world to come. Apart from Christ, we were lost and we were loving it. And Christ intervened. And Christ descended from glory and took upon Him our humanity with absolute perfection. And in our place, He not only lived perfectly, He died perfectly. Does that still excite you? Does it still leave you speechless? Does it still bring tears to the eye to know what Christ has done for you? I believe it did for Jude in every detail. Salvation's glory all-encompassing for Jude. But you notice there's also something about the breadth of Jude's salvation that he wished to speak of with them. That breadth is that it is then simply characterized as the faith. It isn't that Jude simply views this as faith expressed at the moment of our response to what God has been doing in us, that's not the faith Jude is speaking of here. No, rather, this is the faith that is built on the entirety of the history of what God has been doing from the beginning to the end. This is the faith, all-encompassing. Listen, our Bible is a living, breathing book and story of God's redemption from beginning to end. That's what it is. 
you know, it matters. All of it matters. It's all tied together. It's all telling one grand theme from beginning to end. There's a thread that sews it all together. You can't separate the faith that saves you in Romans from the lineage of kings and chronicles. You just can't. It's all tied together. You, you can't separate the kings and chronicles from the coming king in Revelation. He is the king of all of those kings. And so this is a glorious book. It is one grand outworking that Jude says this is what we are called to contend for. Every jot and tittle of it from beginning to end. This is the story of God's divine sovereign plan to bring about the salvation of his people. Meaning you, if you believe. All of it matters. It captures the heart. It captures the mind. And it fires the will of Jude to write about it. And so Jude says, beloved, while I was making every effort, he's exhausting himself to write to you about this great common salvation. God intervened. What a treasure we possess in the salvation God brought to us, brothers and sisters. Yet know this. Possessing that great treasure also comes with a responsibility. Like priceless jewels, we must guard them. Guard these truths. Guard this faith against those who would steal it from us and try to destroy it. And so there is the glorious truth about the salvation that Jude wants to write about, but then following closely on its heels because of its worth and because of its beauty, there is also the truth about salvation's enemies. Notice what Jude says. While I was making every effort to write about this common salvation, I felt, I was under compulsion, the necessity to write to you, appealing to you that you contend earnestly. For the faith. Here's your call, Christian. As much as we would like to live on a purely positive plane where we don't want to imagine that that anybody's going to come against anything or that we really need to defend the Bible at all. We just want to, you know, go along to get along and it's all sunshine, rainbows and unicorns. That's not the reality. You know it and I know it. And, And to live so and to think like that is dangerous. For yourself, and it's dangerous for others. Right now in the West, we find that Christianity is surrounded by enemies. As we're discovering at 9.30 in our series on wokeness in the church, the church is surrounded, the gospel is surrounded by enemies. What a great time to be able to fulfill Jude's command. Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Cultural Christianity in the West, I think for too long has caused us to believe that Jesus had no enemies. Right? Isn't that how everybody in America, I mean, if you're American, you're essentially Christian. And everybody in America loved Jesus. At least, I'm pretty sure Warden June Cleaver did. But that's the mentality that that we've lived with for far too long, that that somehow everybody really does love Jesus and everybody really does hold to the faith, as Jude says. And what we've done is confused a social morality that was undergirded at one point by Judeo-Christian values with what it really means to love Jesus. 
and what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. But now that those things are being stripped away, we find that, that really they didn't love Jesus. And we're scandalized by that. We're shocked by that. And now we're called to contend for that. Not only in the culture, but in the professing church as well. There are enemies surrounding the gospel Jude wants to speak about. The gospel that changed him so. And so instead of rehearsing the glories of salvation exclusively, and Jude, you'll see it bleeds through throughout the letter, Jude really can't get away from it. But rather than being able to just exclusively, essentially write a hymn of praise for his salvation, Jude must turn his pen to another subject, the subject of defending this great faith. Brothers and sisters, we are living, you are living, in a time where you must defend the faith. You must defend it for your children, if nothing else. You must defend it for your grandchildren, if nothing else. It's not the job of the pastors and the elders only to defend the faith, though they should lead in doing that. It's not the job of the the seminary trained to do that, though they certainly should do that. It is the job of every single believer to know the faith in such a way that they can contend for it. We must preserve and promote the faith for the future. There there are those who are overly optimistic who wish to see no ill in anyone or anything and just choose to believe that cultural Christian lie that, oh, it'll all work out in the end. I don't want to be seen as the antagonist to someone by challenging their viewpoint. Those people will soon wake up to the realization that they have no faith left. And they'll wonder why their children departed the faith. And they'll wonder why people don't take them seriously. Because nobody enjoys a hypocrite. Nobody. But people may not agree with you, though they may not like you. They will respect you if you will stand up and contend for what you believe. You can do it kindly, but you can do it boldly. And so Jude says, listen, you must contend for the faith. My fear, brothers and sisters, this morning is not that our faith is going to be assaulted from a frontal assault. It's the steady erosion of it that concerns me. It's the giving of ground an inch at a time. And Jude found himself bound up, possessed by a greater reality to guard against all of that slide. Not just the frontal assaults, but the slides, the slow grinding away at it. The word contend has a rich and vivid background that goes back to military times and it means to exert intense effort on behalf of something, to fight for it, to contend for it, to think of a a wrestler for it. It's made up in part of the word in English from which we get our word agonize over it. I'll tell you a story to my own shame. Recently I started going... Back to the gym. Should have been doing it a long time ago. Because there's a bunch of young men in this room who were going to the gym. And, and, and I thought, you know, I can't let my son and some of the other young men in here in this room do it and me not be an example of discipline as well. But I'm telling you, when you're in the gym, you're agonizing. I come home looking like I've agonized. 
Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Jude says you are to agonize like you're in a gym to labor over, to contend for, to sweat and to fight and to push for this faith. Put yourself under strain. Devote the necessary energy to support and defend against all enemies, subtle and frontal. Brothers and sisters, I know you see this, but the enemies of truth are going to come against our faith, and they even are now. But I want you to notice something. Jude says this is the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. If we were to translate this literally out of the Greek, it's a little rougher, but it reads this way. The once for all handed down to the saints faith. It emphasizes the nature and the quality of this faith. It is a final faith. It is an exclusive faith. It is a sealed faith. It can't be tweaked. It can't be reimagined. It can't be rewritten. And it cannot be overcome. Think of all the saints that had already lived by Jude's day. Throughout the Old Testament, the heroes of the faith, Jude says it was their faith. It was Abraham's faith. It was Moses' faith. It was Daniel's faith. It was all of their faith. And they endured, and their, that faith endured. Therefore, it must continue on with our generation as well. So contend for it. Fight for it. It's worthy of our efforts. Why? Because it is that glorious faith of being loved in the Father kept by the Son. It's the faith that has captivated us and now we must contend for it. And so Jude uses this language of warfare. By the way, as Christians, we need to get comfortable with the language of warfare. Jesus is a warrior king. He will come back not as a pacifist philosopher. He will come on a white stallion. And the sword of his mouth will slay the nations. We as Christians must be comfortable with the language and metaphor of warfare. And not shy away from it as if it's some dirty thing that, that, that is beneath Christians. No, this is our call. This is our privilege to contend for something so glorious that we can't ever stop talking about it. But I want you to notice the problem that Jude mentions in verse 4. And here is where it gets particularly difficult. In verse 4, Jude then moves on to the reason we must contend on a human plane. And here's where we must pay special attention. Because in the church, the reality is this, that in the church at certain times, Jude says certain persons. Are you looking? It's meant to be a pejorative term. It's certain persons it's not a compliment and it's not because jude doesn't know who they are jude absolutely knows who they are but he says certain persons have crept in that's the nature of their character they don't come and advertise what they are they sneak in they're low lives the language is derogatory and intentionally meant to reveal their deceptive and immoral character and purposes It's meant to cast a negative view of who they are. Now I know, that's not popular. We're not supposed to have a negative view of anybody. We're not supposed to say anybody in our postmodern world, as we learned this morning, is wrong about anything. And yet Jude says they absolutely are. 
Their character needs to be revealed. The, the lies that they are teaching need to be revealed. It must be said. Jude means to be negative here. So Christians, where there is blatant false teaching, don't be afraid to be negative and say it is wrong and they are wrong. We have the example and the command in Scripture to do exactly that. Certain persons, though unnamed, are the problems that require such a vigorous defense of the faith. I want you to note again that these are not atheistic outsiders who've come in to try to tear down the walls of the kingdom with battering rams. They didn't roll up on on the battle scene and bring out their sledgehammers and start hammering away at the walls. What did they do? These men are far worse. They're spies. They infiltrated. They put on the same uniform. They used the same language for a while. And like thieves who come in in the middle of the night, they get into the interior of the church in order to do the most harm. They work from the inside out. I wonder how many people might have been spared if cancers always started as some glowing sign on the outward parts of our body that you could see and know instantly, hey, there's a cancer here. But how do most cancers start? Microscopically on the inside where no one sees. Jude says that's what these men are. They've crept in. You didn't see them and they're like a cancer that it's going to destroy from the inside out. It's going to metastasize from the inside out. No, these are not atheistic outward warriors. These are covert clandestine saboteurs. Their intentions are masked by their actions. They must sneak in because they know what they intend to do and they know they cannot do that in a frontal way. Paul refers to them in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us to bondage. You see, the, the, the Judaizers and the legalists in Paul's day came in and they couldn't come in openly and admit what they are. They had to sneak in in order to get it done. Paul in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29 again says to the elders, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. Again, I said it last week, but among who? Not just the church, but the eldership. And they're going to destroy, not sparing the flock. They don't care what carnage they wreak. They're in it for themselves. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15 says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Again, the idea of sneaking in because the the intent is so malicious. Peter warns us, in fact, go to just back a few books to 2 Peter. I want you to notice Peter dedicates the entire chapter of his second second chapter of his second letter to address this pattern. Let me just read it for you this morning. But false prophets also arose among the people. Among who? Among the people. Again, not outsiders, insiders. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. Just as indicates they'll come the same way. They'll be wearing the same uniform. 
And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. That sounds like Jude, doesn't it? Bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality. Ah, so now we get a better look at their character. They are sensual, immoral in nature. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. That's why we have to contend for it. And their greed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Why? They want something from you. Do you see the difference in the apostles and these people? The apostles were willing to work if necessary in order to be able to preach. These people could not even imagine having to soil their precious little manicured hands with work. They were there to build. And to leech off of people. They, they were, in their greed, they were exploiting people with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Which again correlates with what Jude will say in a moment. And their destruction is not asleep. God is not Im, immune to them. He is seeing them. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued the righteous, a righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed reveling or i'm sorry reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed suffering wrong as the wages of wrong doing wrong they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime they are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. I think Peter means it. I think Jude means it. This is a serious, serious threat. Continuing on, Peter writes, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse 
for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after watching returns to wallowing in the mire. So what is Jude saying? He's saying there is a pattern. There is a precedent. This is, this is how they live. They're sneaky. They're destructive. And you, Christian, must always be on the lookout for them. Tragically, according to Jude, their fate has already been determined. Notice what he says. They were marked out for this condemnation long ago. Long beforehand, God has determined what their fate would be. Part of our contending is to say what God has said. And what God has said is that He will never tolerate and has never tolerated false teachers. And there is a destruction and there is a judgment coming upon them. And and we are not wrong to say that. We're right to say that. We're right to say this is the way of wickedness. This is the the way of destruction. Repent. And if you do not, and if you follow their teaching, then you too will be marked out for destruction. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Difficult truths Do not change the fact that they are truths still. Jude, Judas, I should say, Pharaoh, Esau, were such men who were made as the sovereign potter has, as lumps of clay to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor. And in that dishonor, there is a judgment that has been long beforehand determined for them. What's going to happen? S.J. Jobert says, This, the actions of people, however contrary they seem to appear to the divine will, were thus in no way outside of the control of God. History has continued to run its predetermined course in spite of various forms of evil and catastrophe. The false teachers in the midst of Jude's community will therefore also not interfere with the divine plan. Why? God has marked out what would come to them and his kingdom will march on. God, throughout the Old Testament, promised such judgment upon those who falsely represented Him. Hosea chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, The day of, days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is determined or demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet, yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways, and there is only hostility in the house of his God. And yet we know that God judged and punished. And so we, we must contend by not only naming the error, but, but calling out the reality that they are under God's judgment. It's not loving to pretend that they're not. We don't help them and we don't lead our own lives and we don't lead our families well when we act like, well, that's their choice. 
No, it's more than that. It is a choice against God, and we must say that, and we must say that their judgment from God will be severe, and it is real. This is what God has predetermined beforehand would happen to them as false teachers. When we contend for the faith, brothers and sisters, we are not only acting with God in a positive sense to rehearse the glorious truths of our salvation, but we are acting with God in a negative sense to battle against the enemies of truth and of God. We must say both. Both are true. The question remains, though, if they are so sneaky and if they come in at night and if they are so stealthy, how will we know? How do you know? How do you know what a false teacher is like? How would you know who to condemn? How would you know? Do you have an answer for that? Do you have a grid for looking at that? Well, Peter gives you one, or Jude and Peter actually both give you one. You read Peter's long condemnation of them. The, the way that you see a false teacher oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes is first their life. Because they are, they look like you. They, 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 they dress like you. They say words that sound like your words. But their character is often where it is fleshed out. This is true throughout Scripture. Please know that a false teacher, and Peter at least, is always exposed by his character. Notice what Jude says. He says they are ungodly. That is to say, uh, according to uh, BDAG, the definitive Greek dictionary, to violate norms for a proper relationship to God. They're irreverent. They're impious. They are ungodly. There are any number of popular teachers today, and all you have to do is look at them and say, I don't need to know a word about what they're saying. I don't need to hear anything else because their deportment and their character is irreverent, impious, and ungodly. Crude jokes. Worldly and base ways of communicating certain things from the platform. We won't call them pulpits anymore because they don't have those. They don't open the Word of God. They're, they're communicators, but, but they're smooth with their words, and yet they lack the character, the gravity, the, the, the soberness of, of the message of the Gospel and in one in whom God dwells. They're, they're, they're ungodly. And then we learn later on that they begin to manifest depraved and demonic natures that, that, that indwell the old man. Sadly, again, there's been a recent example of that in the national headlines with a pastor from Nashville who is an alumni of my own alma mater whose teaching began to be suspect some time ago, several years ago. He began to drift and began to say things that sounded a little off, but yet wasn't off enough to make people separate themselves from him. And then recently it came out that he had been having a prolonged, immoral, extramarital affair with the wife of a professional baseball player. His character now has revealed what he really meant by those words that sounded so similar. But the character reveals, Psalm 36, verse 1, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
the ungodly speaks with their actions about what they really believe about God, and they are irreverent imposters, Jude says. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Jude then says not only are they anti-God, against God in their deportment, but they pervert the grace of God into the most base form of sinful living. How do you know a false teacher? Well, this. They turn the grace of God, the salvation that comes to free us from sin and the bondage of the law, they turn that into licentiousness to do whatever they please. And their, their mantra will often be something like this. Once saved, always saved. Doesn't matter how you live. Sin boldly. I can be at the same time just and sinner. And so, hey, listen, justification is based on faith alone, and that's true. We uphold that, we applaud that, we believe that. But in no way does the Bible ever teach that that is a license then to go and live for the very things Christ died to forgive. Yet that's what these false teachers do. Claiming to be justified, they abuse their salvation by celebrating it with the very sins for which Christ died. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, never be entertained by anything for which Christ had to die. What a great rule of thumb. Don't be entertained by the things for which Christ had to die. It's absolutely opposite of the saving faith handed down to the saints. This is the picture of unbridled and unchecked passions and lust that run amok that that Jude is mentioning here. They are antinomians against the law of God to the furthest degree. The word almost always refers to perverted sexual behavior. The, the, the references to Noah's day in Jude and in Second Peter, uh, notice follow uh, right on here, and angels who do not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of judgment of the great uh, of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. We understand the references here, both in Noah's day and in Sodom and Gomorrah, was gross, rampant immorality. How do you know a false teacher? They're entertained by and then participate in that type of behavior. But the last straw is this, they deny the lordship of Christ. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The, 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 the word master is the word from which we get our English despot. The one who is just absolutely, absolutely in control. There is no competing strength against him. And they deny that. They, they, they deny the, the sovereign rule of God that this is his world and that they belong to, to, to him by right of creation and they must bow. The, they deny that. And then they deny the Lordship of Christ. They deny that Christ is not only sovereign, but that He's Lord of them. He, he is the one given the charge to rule over them. Tom Schreiner says in his commentary, the godless live as, as if God does not exist, so they do not honor Him as their Lord and Master. Remember a number of years ago, 
I called another pastor and their answering machine came on at home. And his wife was the one that had made the recording and she said at the end of the recording, you know, it's the normal voicemail kind of thing. And at the end of it, she just simply says, oh, and remember, if you're living like there is no God, you'd better be right. And it's almost as if Jude is saying that same thing. Hey, they have denied their Lord and Master. They'd better be right because if they are not, judgment awaits them. Judgment awaits them. They have denied Him. They they have blasphemed Him now by denying who He is. Because He is not only Savior, that's what Jude wants to write about. But He is also Master and Lord. You cannot separate Christ from his offices he cannot be savior and not lord he is both he is always uh, perfectly simple and unified in who and what he is they give lip service to the benefits of jesus but they deny him his rule over them as their master and lord They blaspheme Christ by their actions and ultimately then notice by their confession. Do you see how that works? It started with their character and it ends with their confession going sideways. They live lives of immoral, contrary truth to the truth of the gospel and then ultimately they slide into denying Him as their Lord and Master. And we see it tragically all around us. How many pastors of major movements like Hillsong and others have we seen in the last year who have renounced their faith? There were things suspect about them before and then ultimately it slides to the point where they actually just say, forget it. Tragically, um, even in the Reformed world, the conservative evangelical world, we're not immune. I think about men like Josh Harris who was so highly regarded for so long by so many. Now, he doesn't even know what he believes. We need to be careful, brothers and sisters, that we make much of what has saved us in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And then having been moved by that, we move into the realm of contending for that and proclaiming that and guarding against those who would say otherwise. Remember, they are in the church. And they're multiplying their judgment because they are hypocrites and liars. It only makes it worse for them in the final analysis. These are the enemies of God. And this is why every individual believer has a responsibility to step up and contend for the faith. To keep that cancer from spreading within the body. To to challenge false belief. To challenge uh, inconsistent living. So that it can be exposed and by God's grace dealt with according to the gospel. And they would be saved. Or cut out. But it must happen in order for the body to stay healthy. And it is against them and for the gospel that we contend. We battle what God battles and we hate what God hates and we love what God loves. And we contend not because we enjoy fighting. We don't. 
as much as is possible for us, we are to live at peace with all men. But there is a balance to that. When we love the truth, sometimes we will have to battle for the truth. Because it glorifies God and He is our highest priority. Because truth induces worship in us. And that is what we are saved for, to become worshipers of God. And because we love others, we will contend for the truth that will save them. And so Christian, understanding what is at stake, will you contend? For the glory of God, will you contend? For the worship it, the truth induces in you, will you fight to preserve that truth so that you are a worshiper? And because you love others and want them to love Jesus and want them to love God and want them to worship God, will you contend so that the message is preserved for them as well? That's why we do what we do for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for the salvation that has so inexplicably, unexpectedly, yet so graciously come and saved us. Father, I pray that we would just spend so much of our lives, a vast majority of our lives, so saturating and marinating in the glories of what You have done for us. That it is just the natural, reflexive response of us to contend for that which is so wonderful. Not that we are out looking for a fight. But that we are so out looking for the truth. Looking out for the truth. That we would contend earnestly with everything that is within us. Knowing that it has been handed down, tested by all the saints. And it is true. And it is worthy of our love and of our fight. So Father, move us by those realities knowing that You are glorified when we do those things. May we do it for you so that our hearts and our motivation is right when we do it. And not just to be caustic and fleshly. Stirring up conflict rather than seeking to resolve it. But let us do it nonetheless. We pray these things, Jesus, for your sake and for your glory, the one who is keeping us to the very end. May we contend with love and without fear. We pray it in your name. Amen.